Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discussed relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. On today's episode, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Carter Sneed, JD, that's Juris Doctor, a different kind of doctor, director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture and professor of law at the University of Notre Dame. Now, Carter will talk to us about the key ideas in his book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, published by the Harvard University Press. Now, listeners, don't panic. That sounds like a bizarre, kind of heady academic topic. It's going to be tremendous, I promise. Carter and I attended and presented at the Napa Institute, held July 21st to 25th this year in Napa, California. So while there, I took the advantage of the opportunity to actually interview him, yes, in person, which is always a greater pleasure than a virtual interview. Because his book is packed, and I do mean packed full of facts, ideas, and stories, this is the first of a two-part interview. In today's interview, we're going to cover the basic idea of what our legal system implicitly believes a human person is and how that affects our current laws and laws law structure, you might say. So we talk about anthropology, and that's just a fancy word meaning the study of human beings. And in Carter's book, he ex- explores both a flawed view of what our legal system understands a human person to be, and then he presents an alternative understanding that better fits our lived experiences. To illustrate this, we're going to share with you a story that was forwarded to us by our friend Glenn Stanton, Vice President Formation at Focus on the Family. Avid listeners know he's been with us several times. And he wrote the words, absolutely chilling, at the head of this article from author Katie Herzog's ongoing series about the spread of woke ideology in the field of medicine. And we have covered woke ideology and its effects on mental health, particularly in college students, in a recent Dr. Doctor episode. Now, this woke ideology and cancel culture, it's not only a problem or an issue in colleges, but also in medical school. So-called wokeness, as one doctor put it, feels like an existential threat. So here's the pertinent part of the article that pertains to the topic that Carter will cover today on what we Americans believe a human person is. So the article begins, quote, I don't want you to think that I am in any way trying to imply anything. And if you can summon some generosity to forgive me, I would really appreciate it. The physician goes on and says, uh, and the recording provided by a student in the class whom we're going to call Lauren. Yes, the physician that Chris was quoting is at a University of California System Medical School. And he continues on his response, on his apology, quote, again, I'm very sorry for that. It was certainly not my intention to offend anyone. The worst thing that I can do as a human being is to be offensive. His offense, using the term pregnant women. That's right. That was the offense for which he was apologizing so profusely. The professor went on, quote, I said, when a woman is pregnant, which implies that only women can get pregnant. And I most sincerely apologize to all of you in quote. You know, it wasn't the first time that Lauren, the student, had heard an instructor apologize for using language that to most Americans would seem utterly inoffensive, like words like male. And female. Yeah, Tom, as an OBGYN, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I hope I don't shock anybody by saying it is women and only women who become pregnant. <laughs> That's not radical. So why would medical school professors apologize for referring to a patient's biological sex? Because, Lauren goes on to explain, in the context of her medical school, acknowledging biological sex can be considered transphobic. That ends the excerpt from this article, but the underlying belief system here is called expressive individualism, and Carter's going to unpack that, which means in one sense that a person's body is just an extra and something that can be molded 
according to the person's will and choices. And now it's time, after all of that, for the medical trivia question of the day. Well, our guest, Carter Sneed, is a member of the Pontifical Academy of Life. And this was begun almost 30 years ago in 1994 by St. Pope John Paul II. And on its website, it says its purpose is uh, the study information and formation on the principal problems of biomedicine and of law relative to the promotion and defense of life, above all in the direct relation that they have with Christian morality and the directives of the church's magisterium. Sounds like a perfect place for Carter Sneed to be. Thanks be to God he's there. The question, who was the first president of the Pontifical Academy for Life? And here's a hint, Tom. He served only a month before he died and was recently declared venerable. And uh, he is the recent, he is the reason, I should say, that women take folic acid in their prenatal vitamins when they're pregnant to prevent neural tube defects. Uh, it's, it's an amazing story. You've heard us talk about this person before. Hopefully, a little bit of that is sticking around in your hippocampus or wherever you're keeping your long-term memories. But you'll have to hang on till the end of the show to get the answer. We'll be back with Carter Sneed after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Here we are at the Napa Institute in Napa, California with Carter Sneed. Carter Sneed is a lawyer, one of those JD type of doctors. William P. and Hazel B. White, director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame University. He's professor of law, concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, fellow of the Hastings Center, and he found time to write a book that we're going to talk about what it means to be human, the case for the body in public bioethics. I read it, was astounded by it, and I want to share some of the wisdom of Carter with you. Carter, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to join you and to join someone who is one of those medical type doctors. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of doctors. So uh, Carter, I value people like you who look into fundamental questions like anthropology, what it means to be a person, what it means to be human. So even though it's a big word with a meaning that escapes many people, uh, you know, it simply does studying mean what does it mean to be a human person? What's a human being for? It reminds me of one of my favorite Psalms, which I think you quote part of in your book from uh, Psalm 8, where David says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. So how come we are so bad in our culture at answering this question in our society? That is, what is a person? Not just in law, not just in bioethics, uh, which is the focus of your book, but in understanding this fundamental question of what it means to be human. Yeah, well, so the question, as I mentioned in the book, the question of what it means to be a human being has been a question that has bedeviled mankind since we had the capacity to even reflect on these kinds of questions. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge uh, issue that's been described as the sort of Archimedean point of all reflection. By Ernst Kasserer, I think, said that. And uh, as you say, I mean, the psalmist said it best, what is man uh, that God is mindful of him? Uh, it's it's the biggest question, or maybe one of the biggest questions that we have, and it's a, it's a very difficult question, and it's made more difficult by the fact that there are images and visions of what it means to be human what it, and what human flourishing is that are very partial and incomplete so as to be false, that are extremely attractive, and that's really, and one of these particular visions of human identity is, is uh, I focus on in the book is what I identify as really the fundamental problem with the law that relates to, to biomedical science, biotechnology, and the practice of medicine. And before we dive into that incredible idea that you unpack, tell people what your book is about, but what it's also not about. What's yeah. So the, so the book is, so I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm a lawyer and I've been working in the area of public bioethics for about 20 years. And public bioethics is the area of law and public policy that concerns itself with the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. So it is the point at which law and policy come into contact with these hard ethical questions about human flourishing, human identity, and they emerge in a concrete way in the context of, let's say, the law of abortion, the law relating to assisted reproduction, the law relating to end-of-life decision-making, including assisted suicide. Those are the three principal areas of law I look at in the book. And so the question I ask in the book is what vision of human identity and human flourishing lies at the root of those 
areas of law and public policy. And the reason I ask that question is because all law, like almost everything else, but especially law, has to have an operating assumption about what a person is. Law exists for the sake of protecting and promoting the flourishing of persons. And if that's what law is for, then it has to operate from a prior understanding of what a person is and who a person is and what human thriving is. And my argument in a nutshell in the book is the richest way to understand law is to ask that question, to ask, does the law have a correct assumption about what it means to be human? And is the, are the doctrines and policies and laws built on top of that assumption? Uh, are they just and humane because they get the first question right? And then I more specifically ask that question of these three areas of law connected to abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision It strikes me that there's some similarity between what you do and what a public health doctor does. We've covered on our show that public health accounts for about 70% of a person's health through behavior, even though they're not seeing individual patients. You're not necessarily seeing individual plaintiffs, individual patients, but you can have a big impact on what's going on. Do you think that's a fair analogy? I do think that that's a fair analogy, absolutely. And I should say one thing, and this is, I think, true of public health as well. And public health, by the way, intersects in a very dramatic fashion with bioethics. I yes. mean, we, especially oh, in the gosh, pandemic, yes. we've seen this, right, yes. with questions of quarantine and, so, and restrictions yes. on freedoms and vaccines and all these other relevant questions. But, um, but yeah, I just want to make be very clear that when I talk about the vision of anthropology or human identity and human flourishing in this book, I'm not talking about what people's attitudes are. I'm talking about what the law assumes is the truth of the matter. And, when the, and, and, and so, and in fact, one of the key observations of the book or arguments of the book is that in these areas of law that I've mentioned, the assumptions of the law about who a person is and what their flourishing is it conflicts with the reality of the matter, and it conflicts even with the intuitions and desires and self-understanding of people in these contexts. Your, your, your premise is that there's an incomplete vision of what a human person is. And I, I'm thinking here, this is similar to what we in the church called a heresy, because I think I read Chesterton saying that a heresy is taking part of the truth and making it all of the truth. It, does that make sense? That's, that's very nicely said. Um, absolutely, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying this vision, and we'll get into it, I'm sure, this yeah. vision of human identity and flourishing, which will unpack a lot, it's called expressive individualism, uh, expresses and captures some truths about who we are. Um, but but to make it the whole truth of who we are is to be gravely misled with disastrous consequences. Well, let's see if we can get into expressive individualism by first, on a recent show we did with uh, one of our favorite ethicists, Ashley Fernandez from- uh, Oh, he's wonderful. Yes. Um, we, I brought up to him the concept that some people now think we can go one better than the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you, with what they call the platinum rule. Have you heard of that? No, what is that? Uh, the platinum rule is uh, saying do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Oh, okay. So, which to me sounds like a backdoor way into radical autonomy. It sure does seem that way, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So, in other words, it was kind of funny that they almost want to use religious-like language to say something that's really against our Judeo-Christian ethic. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, what is this underlying anthropology that you uncovered based on what you saw um, in the law? Yeah, so what you just said is exactly right, by the way. Namely, the way I discovered this anthropological set of premises or identified them is by looking at the law as it exists. And I use the word inductive to describe that mode of analysis. I looked at the law as it currently exists. I didn't look at it through a particular lens of principles or ideology. I just looked at, I said, what's the case law in America on abortion? What is the legal landscape concerning assisted reproduction? And what are the laws around the country that relate to end of life decision making? And, I, and what came to the surface when I analyzed those particular areas as they currently exist was a vision of the human being, which as I say is very partial and it's true in some narrow respects, but it is certainly not the whole truth about who we are. And it's the absence of, of it's what's missing that makes it such a dangerous foundation for the law. It's a vision of the human being as an isolated, alone, atomized, to use a phrase that Charles Taylor, philosopher Charles Taylor uses, uh, individual. So the fundamental human reality is the individual, him or herself, abstracted from any context or relationship, family, tradition, culture, what have you. It's a kind of abstraction of the atomized individual standing alone. That's the fundamental reality. That's why we call it individualism, expressive individualism. The expressiveness comes in the way it defines human flourishing. So it almost sounds like uh, John Donne was wrong according to this view that a man is an island yeah exactly no and and it's funny people i mean people you know think about 
you know, John Locke and they think about other political theorists that we learned about in high school or maybe in college who talked about the sort of social contract and imagine, imagine a sort of conjectural beginning of human history, which begins with the human being alone in nature, yeah. which is obviously false. There's never been a human being alone in nature other than Adam and Eve, you know, so it's, it's a very strange and artificial way to begin reasoning and it biases the rest of the analysis in the direction of individualism. So yes, you're exactly right. It begins with the sort of atomized individual person as the fundamental reality, not the person in community, not the person in society, but rather the, the a, very, a very artificial and strange thing that we never encounter in real life. What role might the Protestant Reformation have made in this form of thinking, if any? Well, so I'm not an expert in that. I have a wonderful colleague named Brad Gregory at the University of Notre Dame who wrote a great book called The Unintended Reformation, which people should check out. But one of the things, I mean, you know, with the understanding that this is not my area of expertise, it does seem clear to me that Protestantism and the Reformation did kind of reorient the focus uh, on the individual in a, in a dramatic way and, and did so... Um, uh, by you know by elevating the individual and removing any kind of mediation between the individual and God, and that is in, in important respects a kind of analogy to what we're talking about. And, and then Alexis de Tocqueville came from France to America in the eighteen forties, wrote Democracy in America, and he saw some strain of individualism that kind of worried him, didn't he? He did. In fact, he well, some some folks have suggested that he coined the phrase individualism. There's some historical evidence that it was used shortly before and other and another another French author. Um, but but yeah, he noticed something that he called individualism, which isn't quite what I'm talking about, but is very much related to it. Namely, it was a kind of retreat into the tight circle of one's own friends and family and concerning self with, with one's own special and unique interests to the exclusion of one's communal responsibilities and interests. So it's a kind of tightening of focus into a small circle, whereas what I'm talking about is certainly in that spirit, but it's even more radical because it conceives of the fundamental reality of the individual abstracted even from those tight connections. And what about this in America where on the East Coast we have a Statue of Liberty, you know, freedom, do what we want to do. I think Victor Frankl said it in the 1950s that the American to be balanced needed a statue of responsibility on the West Coast. How, how does that fit into I'm not this? sure it would belong on the West Coast, but yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, maybe in the Midwest, uh, where I live. We'll but, take it, yes. <laughs> but the... Um, uh, no, it's and it, th that actually tracks very closely something Charles Taylor wrote in a beautiful essay called uh, Atomism, uh, which in which he kind of says that there's a real problem in Western political thought to focus on rights to the exclusion of principles of belonging or principles of responsibilities. You and, and you can't really have one without the other. It's a kind of deformation to focus on one without the other. It's not real, uh, and yet it's a very intoxicating temptation to think about it that way. Now, the idea of expressive individualism seems to play mostly on on the soul or the spirit. It, it's the will, and it ignores you know what you're going to talk about, the, the body. So how does this view take a look at us human beings almost as spirits? Yeah, that's, exact, that's exactly what it does. So whereas it's individualism in the sense that it takes the individual as the fundamental unit of reality, it defines human flourishing, in ter it de well, defines the person, first of all, as coextensive with, exclusively coextensive with the will or the, or desire. So you are your will. You are your capacity to choose, your capacity to formulate future-directed plans and to pursue those. Uh, you uh, and that's what defines who you are. That's that's what defines me. Um, we are our minds, essentially, uh, as a kind of and everything else, including our bodies, uh, are instrumental. Are the instrument our bodies, our relationship to other peoples, including our family, our our relationship to the natural world, are all instrumental, and they all uh, serve the the ultimate goals that are generated by interrogating the depths of our of our interior self so it looks like choosing is the ultimate good not what we choose but just the act of choosing that's exactly right and what you'll notice uh, when when you think of the way in which this defines human persons and human flourishing is that it privileges cognitive activities in a way that excludes vast majorities of the human population. In fact, everyone in the human population, if you take a kind of the arc of their development from birth and conception to natural death, uh, it, it basically rules out of the, of the domain of personhood those of us who aren't capable, whether because we're a baby or a, an unborn child or a person suffering from dementia or, or in a coma or what have you, people who can't 
do the cognitive things that are definitional for personhood under this. And then how does this idea affect the definition of what healthy is? Well, see, this is, and as a physician, this is something that is, is, I'm sure, very important to you. I mean, Leon Cass, my old boss at the President's Council on Bioethics and wonderful mentor, uh, focused very much on, on the question of the definition of health because health itself is the animating good of the profession of medicine. There is no, there is no medicine, there's no profession of medicine without an objective conception of health, uh, which could be a range of, of functioning, but, it, but it's certainly an objective standard. And what expressive individualism threatens to do is to subjectivize the concept of health and makes it simply the object of the desire of the person. So you, you know, the doctor becomes a kind of service provider who has no animating good that you've learned and studied and trained as a professional and profess as a, as a professional, but instead you're simply there to provide whatever the subjective desires and wishes of the individual that you're treating happen to be. I'm a vending machine then as a doctor. Yeah, yeah at, yeah, at best. And, and, <laughs> yes, and if I don't want to vend what they want, then I don't have a, a role there like that New England Journal article, Physicians as Conscripts. Uh, by Ezekiel Emanuel back a few years ago. Or worse, you could be sued for mal- malpractice, for not observing the standard of care. I teach torts, and, uh, and the, you know, the, the most important regulatory scheme that we have in the United States for the practice of medicine is the tort system, is the malpractice system. And that's defined by your duties as a physician in the, under the common law are defined by the standard of care that your field professes. But if that becomes something that becomes purely subjectivized and you're not willing to do the thing that your patient wants, not only are you not serving them as a doctor, you might very well be liable for malpractice. That's a happy thought, Carter. <laughs> but, you, but you're right. Many of my colleagues and I and students, future physicians, are thinking that, saying, hey, I can't go into OBGYN. They'd never let me do it. I can't go into pediatrics. They'd never let me do it. And we're having, having to help these pre-med students and med students. No, you can do it. This is how you do it. They have to do it. They must do it. Because then there'll be nobody treating people the way they deserve to be treated. That's exactly right. And there is a coordinated, well-funded effort underway and very powerful people who are trying to entrench in the law the proposition that not performing an elective abortion is contrary to the standard of care of, of obstetric. And I find it remarkable that if I don't prescribe methotrexate to some patient or Accutane to another or hydrochlorothiazide to another, no one's going to come down my throat at me for not doing those things. It's only these certain procedures. Okay, in your book, you lay out very nicely where this idea came through case law, or actually, not case law, it was more through three publications of some um, scandals. Tell us about those scandals. Yeah, so American public bioethics emerged as a field of law and policy in the late 60s and early 1970s in response to the to three scandals that I, that I that I describe in the book. So law and, and public policy, you know, sometimes is purely reactive. And that's true of American public bioethics. It's a highly reactive area of the law. Usually what happens is there's a scandal and then there's a kind of governmental response to the scandal, usually or you know, whether even if it's something simply convening hearings or maybe there's a case that comes up and that's precisely what happened in this in this area that's what brought up church ecumenical councils too wasn't it It was always some problem arose and they had to react some troublemaker like arius or whomever you got exactly you gotta you gotta take care of business so so what what happened here um and again, different scholars, different commentators, you know, focus on different events. There are a lot of different places you could start. But I, I chose three signal events in the book because I think they capture the thesis of the book, namely that public bioethics is, has gone wrong in the United States, at least in the areas that I focus on, because they embrace a vision of the human person that is, that is false and impoverished. And the first one is research on human subjects. Exactly right. And so... Henry Beecher, famous anesthesiologist from Harvard University, who was himself quite interested in the question of the Nazi doctors and what they had done, the atrocities that those so-called doctors perpetrated in the concentration camps and then were later tried at Nuremberg and in some cases executed. Um, He was really interested in, in that case and in the question of human subjects protections more generally. And one thing he noticed and everybody else noticed is at that trial, the defendants, the Nazi doctor said, you know, you prosecutors from the United States, don't really have a leg to stand on. You don't have clean hands here because you don't actually have a code of ethics that that, uh, binds doctors in your country. 
And they weren't wrong about that. Wow. And, and in fact, in around, around the same time, the American Medical Association and other, they, there were codes adopted in response to the kind of scandal of the absence of any binding authority in the United States on those particular questions. And then the problem became even more dramatic when Beecher himself decided to take a look at several, 22 different cases uh, of research involving human subjects uh, that were undertaken by the most prominent areas uh, or most prominent centers of research in the country, Ivy League schools, well-funded private foundations, the federal government itself, in which he discovered 22 instances of research involving no therapeutic benefit at all for the human subjects involved, and in all but two cases, not even an effort to secure informed consent. And terrible things were done by these practitioners to these poor, vulnerable subjects. And the most dramatic example, from my perspective, is what happened at Willowbrook, which was a school on Staten Island for intellectually disabled children, where researchers deliberately injected them with hepatitis, infected them with hepatitis. And when confronted about it, they said, look, these kids are probably going to get hepatitis anyway. Uh, we, we told the parents generally what we were doing, although they didn't give them all the material information that was necessary to making an informed choice or whoever the proxy decision makers were for those kids. And they did the same thing at the New York Chronic Disease Jewish, Ho Jewish Hospital, where they injected live cancer cells into patients suffering from dementia. Uh, they, they, they did all th they did. They did similar um, interventions with people, uh, military, enlisted military uh, servicemen and women in, um, withholding certain kinds of efficacious treatment for them and, and, and resulting in serious health uh, problems for these folks. And, um, and this, this, was, and it, this was not an outlier. Beecher found that this kind of practice of human subjects research was, was more the norm, and it was done in elite institutions, and the results were published in peer-reviewed journals where they knew exactly what had happened. And it was an extraordinary <clears throat> moment of scandal. Uh, it sent shockwaves through uh, the public, and um, uh, there were congressional hearings convened uh, to, to grapple with that question, but also two other cases that, that you alluded to. Another case was a case involving U.S. public researchers going into Tuskegee, Alabama. That's probably the best known to our listeners. Yeah. And, and even in medical school, we learned about that. It was an atrocious uh, effort, a systematic effort at deception and abuse and exploitation of poor African-American sharecroppers in Alabama. And they were all men, right? All yeah. men, but they, of course they had families and they passed these, uh, they, this infectious, this highly infectious disease. Yeah, they disease. all had syphilis and they just let it go. Yep. It was what they could called, have treated them and didn't. They called it a natural history study and it started in the... In sort of really in the in, in the in the beginning not not far from the beginning of the 20th century like 1930s and uh it was only going to be like a very brief study but it went on for 40 years and uh 600 men were in the study and they were systematically deceived as to what they were even uh doing what the researchers were doing and this is the u.s government itself these are not federally funded researchers these are government employees of the u.s public health service in tuskegee alabama uh, and they, they simply told the men involved that we're just testing you for bad blood, which of course doesn't mean anything. They gave them a very brief, they gave them a small amount of money. Uh, they promised them expenses to offset their burial and they gave them spinal taps. And, but most shamefully of all in the middle of the 1940s, when penicillin became standard of care, yes. they did not give that to these men, didn't tell them about it. And it was reported that they colluded with local health authorities to prevent them from getting that help. So this is, this was a disastrous experiment. And again, when confronted again, they said something very similar to what the uh, researchers in Beecher's case said. And uh, honestly, what the Nuremberg doctor said, they said, look, we weren't making the situation worse. We went into an impoverished situation where these guys weren't going to get uh, access to these medicines because of their socioeconomic circumstances, because of racism and so forth. And we just observed the natural history of the disease. We didn't make it worse. We just simply, and of course, that's actually not a true account of what they did. They did deceive them uh, affirmatively. But even if that were the account, that's not okay to do. And, uh, and it came to light in, in the 1970s, shortly after after Beecher's publication. Uh, and the third e example of the scandal that I mentioned in the book, which is the least well-known to people, a lot of people have heard of Beecher, a lot of people have heard of Tuskegee, is a really shocking set of exper experiments that the NIH was debating funding. And it, it's probably the case that they funded this research previously. There's no evidence for that, but, it, but it's the, the circumstantial evidence suggests that perhaps they were funding it. Uh, research in Scandinavia involving physicians who would travel to Scandinavia where abortions were performed in a manner quite different than they were performing them in the United States. Uh, they would do hysterotomies where they would basically do a C-section delivery of a child, an unborn child, 18 weeks, 15 weeks, 16 weeks, and an intact living child and just let them expire. 
right? They'd, they'd deliver them and they'd let them expire. And these doctors realized that, wow, this is a really interesting population of human subjects we could, re- we could work on. They're imminently dying because they've been aborted. By design, they're imminently dying. And uh, we can use them for research. And these doctors inject them, injected them with radio-labeled microspheres. They practiced using different kinds of surgical instruments on them that were painful. Sometimes they extended their lifespan for several hours. Sometimes they did this while the child was still connected to his or her mother by the umbilical cord. It was a sh- it's a shocking, shocking thing. And in fact, Eunice Shriver, sister of... RFK, JFK, and Senator Edward Kennedy found out about this and was so scandalized by it. And her daughter, Maria Shriver, organized a a, a protest at at her local Catholic school in the D.C. area to NIH. And then uh, I'm certain approached her brother, uh, Senator Kennedy, about convening hearings on this particular question as well. And they did. And uh, and again, it was a shocking series of violations and exploitation uh, that that uh, all of which culminated in, in, a, in several weeks of, of congressional hearings that ultimately resulted in a federal statute. And that will take us to the end of the first half of this interview with Carter Sneed, trying to understand what expressive individualism is. We'll be back with more after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to the second half of this week's interview with Carter Sneed on his book, What It Means to Be Human. So we've got these three seminal events. What laws did they lead to in summary? Yeah, so in summary, it's one statute, right? So there's one statute called the National Research Act that was passed in 1974. Richard Nixon signed it into law. And it did a variety of things. First of all, it imposed a moratorium on federal funding on the kind of uh, newborn, just aborted research that I was just, just describing to you. Uh, and it also created the National Commission on Bioethics, which had statutory authority to propose policy to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, then called the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, um, <clears throat> who had to either accept the recommendations or explain why he or she was not accepting the recommendations. And... Uh, put in place what became the beginnings of the federal regulations and laws governing human subjects. So not just, you know, pre-born, I right. mean, all of life. Across the, yeah, across, right. the, across so, the board. So looking at this law and the later ones that would develop in subsequent decades, how does that fit in with this idea of expressive individualism? How do you see that in these laws? So the first thing that you see in these laws is that what they did, the primary legal safeguard that they tried to repair to, to to respond to these scandals was the good of autonomy operationalized in the legal doctrine of informed consent, right? They said the way to protect people who have been exploited and abused as the people in these scandals were is to strengthen the mechanisms to guarantee and secure informed consent, which of course is grounded in the good of autonomy. Okay. And was there anything wrong with that? Standing alone? No, obviously it's a good thing to protect autonomy and it's a good thing to promote informed consent. That's essential. And patients and human subjects, especially, I mean, patients, but even more importantly, human subjects and research experimentation need to be told all the material information that's necessary to making an informed choice about participating in research that could, you know, present certain kinds of risks and benefits to them. Okay. But it's, it's the kind of, you know, when you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If the only thing that you're focused on is promoting autonomy, all you're doing is protecting that narrow sliver of the population, which is an important sliver to protect, but the, the sliver of the population who is able-minded and in context can make these free decisions to weigh and balance choices and to participate in a regime of informed consent. But let's, let's take a look at how this regime of informed consent would have helped the children at Willowbrook. It wouldn't have, right? Right. These are children, intellectually disabled children. They cannot make a a decision about the risks and benefits of a particular proposed uh, pattern or, or pathway of research. The unborn children, sorry, newborn children who had just been aborted in Scandinavia certainly wouldn't have benefited from robust informed consent forms given to them to to secure their consent before uh, engaging in those activities. And you can see the problem here is by privileging informed consent and autonomy, you're only helping those people who are cognitively capable of protecting themselves through participating in this process. And that, to me, points to a vision of human flourishing that simply understands people as minds and wills. Did anybody at the time bring up that concern that they weren't even addressing the problems they'd seen? Well, the thing, the the National Commission on Bioethics, which was created 
1979, published a report called the Belmont Report, which sought to articulate, and it's, it's an imperfect, it's a flawed document, but it is interesting for historical purposes because it sought to identify, as they were charged to do by statute, the ethical principles that should govern biomedical research and biomedicine. And they came up with a series of principles. The first principle was respect for persons. Second principle was um, was uh, beneficence or non-maleficence, and the third one was justice, okay? So sometimes these are reformulated as four principles, sometimes as three principles. But the first principle is respect for persons, and they, in fact, did take on board this observation, and they said there are two components to respecting persons. One is to preserve the autonomy of those capable of exercising autonomy, but the other principle is you have to protect those vulnerable people who can't exercise autonomy. So they, in the Belmont Report itself, you see a kind of implicit acknowledgement of this issue, which is admirable. But over time, you see these principles re-articulated, refined, especially by very famous uh, ethicists at Georgetown. Um, Edmund uh, Pellegrino? Well, no, not Ed Pellegrino. He, he, wouldn't, he would not have subscribed to this. this he, it's the Georgetown principles as articulated by Tom, Beecher, uh, Tom Beecham and Jim Childress. So Beecham and Childress, who are very famous uh, ethicists, sort of synthesized, took the Belmont Report's framework and and have you know sort of branded it as the georgetown principles which have had worldwide impact you can go anywhere in the world and you talk to people about medical ethics and they'll say oh yeah georgetown principles and but the notable thing and this i think confirms the thesis of the book my book is that they've reformulated respect for persons simply as respect for autonomy and they left out the vulnerable they did which especially we as catholics we recognize that is so yeah, necessary preferential option for the vulnerable Oh, yes. Preferential option for the vulnerable. I like that. Now, in my recent um, interview with Ashley Fernandez, we talked about the fact that there is something in America called identity politics, but he says he's recently learned about something called identity epistemology. In, in other words, it's just what I think is real is real, and that's what matters. Does that play into this autonomy idea? It does. It does in, in an important way because basically the 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 only truth that is morally definitive and decisive of your future under the framework of expressive individualism are the authentic truths that you discover inside yourself. So human flourishing is you look inside yourself and you consult the inner depths of your own sentiments and you discover inside authentic original truths that may very well be transgressive of society's mores. Yeah. And then you use those truths to first express them and then to configure your life plan according to those truths. And that's what constitutes human flourishing under the framework of expressive individualism. Now, why would a public bioethics allow expressive individualism of the patient, but not of the doctor or the nurse? Well, that's a great question. I think it it's highlights an important inconsistency. I th and I, I think that um, that uh, a doctor is understood in this framework as a kind of service provider to uh, a kind of instrument to the individual realizing their unencumbered will, the, the truths or authentic interior truths of the unencumbered self. And you're kind of a midwife of that process. So where is there room for love in expressive individualism? Yeah, that's a hard one because expressive individualism <clears throat> is is stripped and denuded of all constitutive attachments. Attachments to other people, to communities, to the natural world are entirely viewed through a purely instrumental lens. They are purely, they, they exist for the sake of me pursuing the goods that emerge from my interior, you know, introspection, right? So, so it, it's a very lonely in, uh, existence because you can't even have a sort of true friendship because you can't actually ever make the good of another person your own good. You can't make it constitutive of your own good because the truth comes from inside you. And really the only person that can know your truth fully is, is you. Is you. So it, as you've said, and as you wrote in the book, you say in the book, at the very deepest level, law and public policy exists for the protection and flourishing of persons. So if people who would agree with expressive individualism agree with that, is there a difference in the way we define flourishing or the word person? Yeah, absolutely there is. So so I think I think that expressive individualism understands a person as a cognitive being who is defined by his or her capacity for choice, whose flourishing is dependent upon and in fact defined by the interior exploration of the self, finding your original truth and configuring your life plan accordingly. A person is a will, an atomized individual will in a world of individual wills that you can either come into collaboration with if you have mutual interest 
you, you break apart when those interests uh, diverge, or you could also uh, encounter other wills as adversaries that you have to overcome to find to pursue the projects of your will. There is no, there is no constitutive attachment. There are, there's no relational reality uh, other than purely trying to, to find your own, uh, the pathway to pursue your own truth. So in the last part of this interview, let's go on to what is the alternative to this? What do you propose and why? Yes. So the reason, now let me say briefly what's true about expressive individualism. It is true in the sense that we are free and that we do have minds and wills that are important and that there can be value in interrogating the depths of one's self. Uh, and we're particular and individual and we don't, we, we are defined, you know, we, we understand ourselves as individuals in important ways and that's all good and that's true, but it's not the whole truth about who we are. The truth is that we are not merely minds with instrumental bodies. We are in fact dynamic integrated unities of mind and body and our bodies are essential features of our lives and they have inexorable realities that, that flow from our lives as embodied beings that, that situate us into a a kind of relationship to one another that brings with it unchosen uh, obligations and unearned privileges, which are unintelligible through the lens of expressive individualism. The only thing that binds me in expressive individualism is me. There's nobody that has a claim on me that I don't choose or, or consent to, right? I, my, even my own parents, even my own children. Those relationships are valid and important so long as I deem them to be valid and important uh, for the sake of promoting my own life plan, my own flourishing. Whereas in the context of what I describe as an anthropology of embodiment, where we understand ourselves as dynamic, integrated unities of mind and body with particular kind of relationships to others that are constitutive and definitive, that means that our flourishing looks very different than just trying to find our truth and blaze our life plan forward. What it means is there are people to whom we have relationships and obligations obligations and, and privileges towards that emerge from our relationality that expressive individualism misses. I mean, we never would have grown up if we had parents who strictly believed in expressive individualism. We'd be dead unless we somehow had the, <laughs> unless, unless, unless our, unless taking care of us was just some kind of important aspect of their life plan that they thought was uh, fulfilling to themselves. And so they did it for that reason. But anybody who's ever taken care of a baby would realize that that's not, that wouldn't take you very far. <laughs> it, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty sacrificial, uh, self-emptying act to care for a purely, uh, dependent in being as, who can't even reciprocate affection. As every parent knows, I find it ironic. I'm wondering if you do that. Someone whose bioethics would support expressive individualism actually wrote a book that calls, that's called, it takes a village. Yeah, no, it, that's, that's, yeah, that's... Is that an oxymoron? I mean, because... Yeah, it is an oxymoron, absolutely. If it takes a village, it means we're vulnerable, we need others. So, you, you know, in the, in the last four minutes we're here, what does um, a public bioethic of us being embodied look like? Yeah, so what it means to be an embodied being means that as, as a fragile, embodied, corruptible being in time, it means that we are vulnerable, right? Uh, it mean, and because we're vulnerable, that means we're mutually dependent upon one another. It means that we're subject to natural limits, which means that we have to take care of each other. It means that our flourishing consists in taking care of each other. For a human being who is embodied, to take embodiment seriously is to recognize that in order to flourish, we don't merely need to look inside ourselves and find our truths and configure our life plan accordingly, like the devil does in, in you know, Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, but rather, we have to, we're radically, we come into the world radically dependent upon other people. We depend on what Alistair McIntyre calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving in which other people make our good their good without hope, without hoping or expecting anything in return at all. And then, of course, we need those networks to survive. Uh, but they don't merely keep us alive. They actually teach us to become the thing that we're supposed to be, namely the kind of person that can take care of another person without expecting anything in return. And in short, what I argue in the book is by virtue of our lives as embodied beings, we're made for love and friendship. That's essential about what it means to be human. And so we can measure our success or failure as humans by looking at the extent to which we take care of one another. And to do that, to, to shore up these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, we have to practice certain kinds of virtues and practices that McIntyre calls the virtues of acknowledged dependence, which include the virtues of uncalculated giving, just generosity, hospitality, and misericordia, which is accompanying other people in their suffering, something very essential to the practice of medicine, as well as the virtues of graceful receiving, gratitude chief among them, 
solidarity, humility, openness to the unbidden, uh, respect for the intrinsic equal dignity of everyone else, honesty, as well as the goods of friendship. All of this can be understood through the lens of friendship and understood in its classical senses, making the good of another person. Your so own it sounds like flourishing uh, really means becoming the best versions of ourselves or what we in the Catholic Church would call being holy. That's a that's a very concise way to say it, and it's exactly right. I mean, the idea is we are at our best and our most human when we're taking care of one another. Mother Teresa is is the is 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 the modern uh, icon of this. And let me just say, you don't have to. I mean, you don't have to be a, a, a to go to Calcutta and join a religious <laughs> order and, and care for the the weakest and poorest and most vulnerable. The the pristine example of the network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving is parenthood. Oh, yeah. It's the relationship between parents and children. And thanks be to God that we have that. And I'm curious, as a last little question, how do you think our virtual living during the pandemic contributed to people's acceptance or rejection implicitly of expressive individualism? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, there are ways in which... So, I mean, there are a lot of different aspects. And in fact, in some cases, the same, same fact cuts in different directions. So, I mean, I, I was happy to see in the pandemic... A, a broad embrace of the proposition that we have to behave in ways that are thoughtful and careful of those who are weakest and most vulnerable, right? The idea that people voluntarily restrain their own freedom, and in some cases not voluntarily, but certainly in, in our own behaviors, we took seriously the idea that we had to behave in ways that protected the most compromised among us, the elderly, the people who had you know pre-existing conditions from this dread disease. And we did things that were inconvenient and uncomfortable and, and in some cases very, very... Uh, restrictive, and, and we sacrificed a lot for that. And that's admirable. At the same time, um, there's a kind of, uh, there's no such thing, I mean, uh, you know, I think Mother Teresa said there's no such thing as, from, uh, as mercy at a distance, right? And so the notion of this social distancing and the kind of retreating into a virtual realm uh, benefited a lot, was easy for a lot of us who happen to be blessed to live in a world where we don't have to have in-person contact to do what we do. And so, it, but, and it was easy to forget. And I think a lot of people did forget there are lots of folks out there who, um, who, who, whose livelihood depends on in-person contact, who, who, who lost their jobs, uh, children, uh, who are isolated people, loneliness. Uh, there was a kind of, um, uh, I think uh, forgetting of our neighbor's vulnerability and a sort of um, uh, forgetting uh, of our obligations to one another sort of as the pandemic went on uh, without trying to think creatively about how we can restore this kind of human contact while at the same time, you know, making sure we don't transmit the disease. And I just, there's this image that haunts me of this guy in a, in a, in a hospital bed with a surgical glove that was filled with warm water and tied off and it was put on him to simulate human touch. Yes. And they called it the hand of God. And it shows the kind of the entrepreneurial spirit of physicians who did that. But that's not a, that's not a substitute for human touch. And to keep dying elderly people away from each other uh, strikes me as a kind of going too far in this effort to try to to try to prevent transmission of disease and that to me is is the kind of forgetting of embodiment that that has deleterious and so in next week's episode with carter we're going to cover what does uh, an ethic of embodiment an anthropology of embodiment look like when applied to abortion assisted reproductive technologies and death and dying carter thanks for being with us we look forward to hearing next week's episode with you my pleasure thank you so much Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and those of you who listen regularly know it's time for the answer to the medical trivia question. Carter Schneed, as we said, is a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, founded in 1994. The question, who was the first president of that academy? And he's well known to Chris and me. Chris, I'll give you the honors. Who was the first president? None other than Dr. Jerome Lejeune. And a lot of you have heard us talk about uh, Dr. Lejeune before. He's a truly remarkable man. He was a French pediatrician. Uh, and geneticist, and he discovered uh, the genetic basis of what we called a Down syndrome then, and we really should call trisomy 21 now. He discovered that, and then he spent the balance of his life trying to protect those children from abortion. And his his outspoken advocacy for life, most would agree, cost him the Nobel Prize in science. A truly, truly great, great scientist. Indeed he was. And in fact, our Catholic Medical Guild uh, in Northeast Indiana is named after him. And that was, gosh, eight years ago at the encouragement of our friend, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, who you've heard on the show. Well, that's the question. Now, the top three takeaways from Chris. 
Yeah, there, there's so much to try to unpack. And this is just the first of two episodes, we'll remind you. The second one is going to be even greater. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is this sort of academic-sounding term, expressive individualism. It's really easy to sort of listen to that and, I think, check out and think, that, that's some kind of philosophical term that really doesn't affect me and the line to buy my groceries. Um, but that's actually not true at all. It, it means I am whatever I think I am, that my choices are what matter. Not, not what I choose, but just the fact that I choose. And so it's part of this problem that we've talked about before, uh, and we'll talk about it more in the next episode, where we sort of uh, elevate personal autonomy as, as the greatest good there is in society. Um, and, and as we know, and we'll talk more about, nothing could be further from the truth there. I think the second one is we talked about some of the pretty horrific experiments that you you heard described, and that is just to call out and say governments, including our own, in the past have done some pretty horrific things to people in the name of science, maybe well-intended, uh, but nonetheless pretty horrible. And we make laws in a reactive sort of way to prevent those future sins. But let's not forget for a moment that our government has done some some bad things. We think they get better over the last 200 years, but they've done some bad things. And then lastly, this idea that um, we're all, we all live and function on some scale of disability, that we're vulnerable, we're broken, um, and we need each other because of these various disabilities. It really plays to the, the teaching of Catholic solidarity because of this this brokenness. Yes, I- indeed. It, we're not just a, a will that chooses, but we also have bodies. And we're going to talk with Carter in the next episode about how the body matters and how it could inform law. And we thank you until then for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And we ask you to be sure to rate and review our show because it helps other listeners find us. You can also find this and all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.